The following podcast contains language that is not suitable for everybody. <laughs> All right, welcome to issue 137 of Super Skull, your weekly new comic day audio digest for the week of April 19th, 2017. My name is Nick Weibar. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Oh, thanks for having me. That was, you heard two voices there. Can you guess which one was which? One of them was Marcus Schwimmer. Who is definitely not a man horse. And, <laughs> and Curtis Sullivan. Who actually is a Sagittarius by a zodiological situation. You are a Sagittarius? I am. Do you have any pictures of centaurs in your home? I have one. I made a, a Christmas party card for two of my friends who are also Sagittariuses. Oh. Yeah. So you're, you're part of a centaur club, perhaps. I am. Yeah. It's me and this dude named Will and my other buddy Sam. And we're like three raging rippling centaurs oh, on, a, cool. on a little birthday card. That's pretty neat. Nick, what That's is your, I got. your zodiac sign? I'm an Aquarius. Mm. Now, let me ask you this. Is this yeah. the, with the jug of water? I don't know. <laughs> Isn't it fish? That's Pisces with the two fishies. I thought I was the two fish. I'm Aquarius for sure. I feel like that's a I think jug Nick, of water. I think Nick really embodies the jug of water. You well, know what I mean? I've been, I've been called a nice jug of water before. <laughs> a tall jug of water. <laughs> Water bearer? That's is that what the symbol for the Aquarius? It might be. I don't know the these lamest things. shit I've ever heard. I mean, if you think about it, though, in ancient times, you're like the giver of life. Yeah, you know what? Water's people a don't, huge people don't talk. Deal. Everybody's like, oh, a lion. Oh, <laughs> fucking two fish. <laughs> you know what? You need though, as you're, at some point, somebody's gonna need a drink of water, or else you're not gonna make it. <sighs> hey, you are a jug of water. No, I feel like back in the old days, the whole world was a desert, so water was. Way important. Yeah, not a lot of people know that, but the whole world was a desert. <laughs> like three, four thousand years ago, just basically all desert. It was three to four thousand years ago. The entire ecosystem was a desert, mm-hmm. and Aquariuses ran <laughs> were as unto gods. That's my understanding of it. Yeah, no, I just have a good feeling about that, and I say we repeat that as fact yeah, forever it, now. Yeah, and uh, all of the all of the Sagittarii and the Leos did our bidding. You and Michael Jordan. Both Aquarius. Oh, of course. That makes so much sense. God damn it. That dude just bites my style all the time. Let's do some in the news. In the news. Spider-Man 2? Huh? The movie? Pull your Leo main out of your mouth and tell me about Spider-Man 2. Spider-Man 2 is the follow-up series to Spider-Man, which was put out in 2012, um, and explored the relationship between Miles Morales and Peter Parker, the two Spider-Men of, at that time, the regular Marvel Universe and the Ultimate Universe. Are they best friends? They aren't. Oh. Um, Very different styles. Very different people. And and that was very much explored in Spider-Man. It's one of my favorite miniseries. Um, so pi- oh, okay. for, for the for the noob, so Peter Parker, we know who Peter Parker is. Yes. I'm not going to tell the story of Peter Parker here. Who's Miles Morales? Miles Morales is the ultimate universe Spider-Man, meaning he is a Spider-Man from a different universe 
who now, because of the actions of last summer's big summer crossover, uh, Secret Wars, uh, is now in the main Marvel Universe. Okay. So this was a character that was meant as like an Elseworlds kind of character for a long time, and then Marvel did a big shake up and now Miles Morales is in the big Marvel Universe, in the main-ass Marvel Universe. There's Miles a lot Marvel. of worlds. Now there's one. Yes. So what I love about this is that at the end of the original series, Spider-Man, Peter Parker gets back, you know, he's, he's back to being regular Peter. He goes and Googles, he's back in the regular Marvel Universe, Googles Miles Morales, and he's like, oh, fuck, and then it stops. And that is the end of that series. Wait, I don't understand. There's now two Miles Morales, right? Because our Miles Morales, who is Spider-Man, is from the Ultimate Universe. He gets brought over to Marvel 616, the main universe. Uh huh. There is already a Miles Morales in that universe because everyone has a duplicate. So Peter Parker comes back to 616, Googles Miles Morales' name, Find something out about him, and then we never hear anything about it ever There's again. There's two Miles's Morales? Yes. There are. And so Fuck. now we're going to explore in Spider-Man 2 what's up with that. Isn't I feel that- like we should have figured that out a while ago. <laughs> right? Isn't that the name of the story? Isn't it like, who is the other Miles? Yeah. That was five years ago. I know. That, a long so time. that's what's cool about it is Brian Michael Bendis like planted this seed a grip ago, and- I had kind of forgotten about it, but it was a big deal when it first happened. And now, finally, he's coming back to it. It's so fucking So, Miles cool. Morales has just been watching TV the whole time, like, oh, man. Just being involved in, like, Seer Wars and, like... But there are other Miles Morales has just been chilling? Just hanging out. We don't out. know. Well. So, the cool thing about this that we got to mention, too, is the original artist of this book, Sarah Pacelli, whose art is, like... Steve McNiven good. She's it's a crisp and clean and detailed and holy shit good. So part of the reason this book took forever to come back out is because her schedule has been busy. She's been doing other stuff. So now they're reuniting the original creative team, which is really exciting because I agree with you, Marcus, that first Spider-Men crossover was a lot of fun. It looked incredibly beautiful. Well, um, you don't leave a fucking hang. You know, you don't. Yeah. The big ending to it has literally gone unanswered for five years, and it was a big deal when it happened. Must not have been that big a deal. Well, we're going to see now. I'm very excited for this series. I love what they've done with Miles Morales, bringing him into the into the 616 universe, and I think this is going to be a really cool way to, to get him and Peter, because he's come over, and him and Peter Parker like have not had that much interaction with one another. It's been awkward. It's been awkward. So now they will either bond or hate. Spider-Man 2 is a lame name for it. So I'm, just, I'm throwing Sp- that out Spider-Man there. Spider-Man 2, yeah. What do you Spider-Man again? What else could you call it? Um Spider-Man Deuce. Okay. Spider-Boys. <laughs> Spider-Boys. Really? <laughs> Spider-Man again? Spider-Man with a question mark? Spider-Man? Spider-Man T O O. There you go. Oh, that's very good. Nailed Look it. who's Spider-Maning now. Nailed it in one. Let's, uh, there's a little bit of board game news. There is some board game news. We go go back to our correspondent, Marcus Schwimmer. Marcus Schwimmer, what's going on in board games? Can someone make helicopter noises for me? Thank you so much. Uh, Asmodee has announced that over in in the year 2016, their biggest year ever, uh, they made over $400 million. This is crazy. Seems like a lot. It's a lot lot of of money. Uh, Asmodee has been an interesting kind of force in the board game industry as they have had a very intense kind of 
business tactic, which is they acquire a lot of things. So what you mean by that, if I may. Of course. So they've been, they've been in the process. They've been in acquisition phase for like the past three, four years. Yes. Where they're just buying up publisher after publisher after publisher. Big the, ones. The biggest publishers in the industry yeah. bought Fantasy Flight. Bought D- Days Z-Man, of Wonder. Bought Days of Wonder. Bought, uh, you know, H- Philosophia. Like, plaid Hat. Yeah, mm-hmm. huge company. And Plaid Hat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just last year, they bought Catan Studios, which is a big one. Catan's still the number one selling board game. And, uh, yeah, they bought, as, as you said, Z-Man and Plaid Hat. What I didn't realize is that they're also in Europe buying up game distribution companies in a big way. Mm-hmm. So last year, just for the European market, they bought three game distributors. Crazy. That's crazy. So they're like design side, supply side. They are... Design, supply, or design, manufacture, supply. They take care of all three aspects of it. Mm-hmm. The downside to all of this acquisition has been that they've racked up a lot of debt. And people have been wondering about that. Like, does Asmodee have the cash on hand? to put out all these games. And myself included, one of the kind of go-tos for when a game is unavailable is Asmodee probably doesn't have the cash to put it out. But with a year like last year making $400 million, uh, it easily covers their payment of their almost $250 million debt. So it is crazy. No company, no board game company is making money like this. Um, and it was just kind of awe-inspiring to hear that they made that Man, much it's, money. It's, it seems so smart now. I know. In yep. retrospect. In, in digging into these numbers a little bit, it was cool to hear him talk about how even without the expansion, they did two sets of numbers. Like, here's what the money we made without buying all this stuff and acquiring all this stuff. It was still really good money. Mm-hmm. And then this expansion money, I, I, it seems like they're making all the right moves. Yep. And, you know, now after we've got a year under our belt with them doing this stuff. I remember a year ago you guys talking about this being like, what is happening? This is crazy. You know, are we going to have no games to sell because these guys can't produce anything? So. Well, and there, there is, I mean, there is worry. So even with a, a $400 million year, sitting on $230 million of debt is a lot of debt. And so they do have to allocate a lot of that money to go towards paying off that debt. But And we have seen, I think Nick will agree with me, some of the companies that Esmodee has acquired are not putting out games as reliably not providing supply of games mm. as reliably as before they were purchased. So that has not been, yeah. That's that's not something that's gone any better. Right now, you 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 got to think that it's going to take them years to figure out those distribution channels as they, you know, as they're they're buying distribution centers, they're buying you know production centers like that. Over time, this could be cool. I do worry about a, a diamond situation. Yep. I, do, I do worry about, and I think this was something that you brought up. Maybe when we first started talking about this over a year ago, and I laughed at you, and I thought it was sounded ridiculous. But now I'm worried about it too. I think you might have been onto something. That we don't want every single game on the planet to be made by one company. You want to be able to go someplace else. And that's been one of the cool things about board games recently is that as it be- has become more profitable and as there's more money in it, you see people from all over the place starting companies and companies growing. And, and now Asmodee is just gobbling them up as they mm-hmm. hit a certain market share. So. Well, apology accepted. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I think this is interesting. Anyone who's into board games, Asmodee, and, and their numbers like this are, are something to watch because it, it tells not only how the board game industry is doing, but a lot of our eggs have kind of forcefully been put into one basket, and it is the Asmodee basket. Yeah. So. Our success is their success and vice versa now. Exactly. So we're on this. 
We're on this weird ass road together. Yeah, and we're likely to get more consolidation and stuff like this. Any, you know, just it's a you know what was a billion and change last year in board games, something mm-hmm. crazy. So, um, of that's which a, that's a big deal. You're going to see more interest in the space, more companies consolidating. Yep. So, yeah, that's the news. That was a great helicopter noise, by the way. Thank you. I um, I got a lot of fully fully work sounds in my pocket. You know, you guys never ask for them, but I'm ready to provide a lot of sound effects if only you would ask. You're, you're like that dude from Police Academy. I'm like that dude from Police Academy. I love that guy. What's his name? Michael Timothy. Something. Michael Timothy. Michael Timothy. That's probably yeah. it. I fucking love that guy. I got a poster of him in my bedroom. Every single week, uh, we read as just as many comics as we possibly can. 403 million comics. Each point, week. Point six. As much revenue as Asmodee brought in in 2016. Um, but the ones that are left over after our debt is paid off are our big picks. That was very good. I don't know if no, it was. No, that was great. Marcus, what was your big pick this week? My big pick this week was Nick Fury... Number one. I have a question right off the bat. Yes. Did you pick it because it has my name in it? I was hoping it would be a surprise. <laughs> but I just couldn't help myself. <laughs> oh, that is good. Yeah, nobody, not a lot of people know that. Must have an offspring. Um, So, what do I... Uh, before I dive into this particular comic, there was a creative artist back in the day named Jim Stranko. Yes. He did a large run of Nick Fury books that I think is just some of the sharpest, coolest art I've ever seen in comics. It's a lot of play with heavy inking, bright color contrast. So lots of large, dark colored lines, very bright colors in the background. Psychedelic James Bond stuff. Exactly. So I was pretty excited to pick up this book, um, and it it provided in a number of ways. Um, So this is the story of Nick Fury Jr., the current Marvel Nick Fury. Um, you may notice him because he looks a heck of a lot like Samuel L. Jackson. That's a good way to tell which Nick Fury you're. That's you're how you know it's with. Junior. That's how you know it's Junior. And this is a little bit of an origin story. He's a young uh, to do spy for Shield, and they're hunting down Hydra. But what makes this book? What's at- a to do spy? He's a to do spy. He's, he's a, uh, a spy trying to prove he's himself. A, he's a field agent he's at a this field point. Field agent. That's so a good is, way to put he's it. Not a, he's not director. Of the strategic homeland. He's a journeyman. He's a journeyman. Correct. Um, but the art is by, is it Echo? Echo? Echo. Echo. It's ACO. One one named human. Echo. Is what? What does that mean? Is that the artist? That is yeah. the artist. Thank you. You're very welcome. Does a very Steranko-inspired art style, and yet... It, you know, it's very much his own. So this book is full of just a wide color palette. It, it's laid out in a way that no other book is right now. The panel work is very fluid um, and very loose. It, it's amazing. It, you, there's not another book that looks like this book on the market right now. Yeah, super um, bright. It's a lot of oranges and fuchsias. 
and crazy, crazy-ass panel work. Yeah, it's the Miami Vice color palette of the Marvel Universe right now. Um, real Grayson effect. It's got a real Grayson. I'm glad you brought this up, Nicholas. Yeah, throwback there. Um, but the creative team is James Robinson's the writer. Um, this dude wrote the screenplay for one of my favorite guilty pleasures, the hit 2003 movie League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Definitely not a oh, hit. Oh boy, that's a oh, it's a real hit. That's a but not a good movie. You may you may know him uh, right now. He's writing the book Scarlet Witch for Marvel, which is is, is I amazing. love that book. It's very good. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's also writing James Bond Felix Leiter, which is a book that I read and really enjoyed, but I thought it suffered from pretty mediocre art. Mm. But the dude knows how to write a spy book. Um, and, and does a good job with it. Um, and then, again, this illustrator, Echo, um, is Echo. just amazing. There's When you open the book, there's a page where Nick Fury is observing the inside of a casino, trying to decide what kind of distraction he's going to use. Um, and all of the things that he might utilize to make that distraction are in these little bubbles that kind of blanket the image. Um, otherwise and it's something that could have been done with a word bubble for kind of a a lazier creative team like um but the way that they do it via the illustration is is really really amazing i think think you're right there's a lot of ways to do this that are not nearly as cool and creative as this yeah you know where it's nick fury on a on a walkway and radiating out from nick fury is like these concentric circles and then tiny little bubbles that get bigger and bigger that show every possibility that could could be there for Nick should he There's a use fire them. alarm, there's a security camera, there's dice, there's there's slot machines, there's guard dogs, there's just all sorts of different yeah, ways really to cool. to mess up the show. And sometimes we forget about the people who color our books, but I think on this book you have to mention um Rachel Rosenberg who does the colors. Um and she did one of our favorite she colored one of our favorite comic series Superior Foes of Spider-Man. Oh. Um that's her. But she's just a monster in the industry, and I've never—I don't think we've ever talked to her about her. But currently, she's coloring Spider Woman, Mockingbird, Ms. Marvel, Black Panther, World of Wakanda, and Captain America, Steve Rogers. Now, Nick Fury as well. Cool. And her colors are amazing. Like the illustrations in this book are great, but they would be nothing without the color palette that's put on them. So, pick up Nick Fury number one. It—it's one of the coolest looking books I've seen in a long time. It's a heck of a good spy story to boot. What do you think, Curtis? I'll agree with Marcus. I think the Steranko influence is all over this book, and it's it's welcome. Uh, he changed the comic book game when he hit the scene. Uh, it changes forever. So I'm glad that uh, somebody's taking picking up the mantle and rolling with that. I love the white eye patch on Nick Fury here. The tech eye patch. You know. Yeah, I can see through walls. You could. You could. Very. It's a very nice eye patch. It costs as much as a helicarrier. They told us in this book. Which seems like that's a trillion dollars. Is that one trillion? It seems pricey, for, for sure, for an eye patch. Um, I love his watch. Dude's got a sweet watch. It is a nice James Bond feel. Can I say, I think that that watch was a little much. That they, watch could literally do everything. They use the watch a lot. See, the watch, so really on almost every page he's looking at the watch and it's got a security camera button on it and he pushes it and then all the security cameras go wonky. And then he's got a dog button on it and then all the dogs go crazy. And then he like calls his car in. It seems like a very nice watch. I think they were being cute with it, you know, for yeah. sure. Um We'll see where they go with it. A little uh, OP. <laughs> the watch is a little OP. They're going to have to nerf that watch in future episodes. Nick, what did you think of this book other than the watch? I thought it was good. I, I really, it was very different. Uh, it looked amazing. 
I haven't seen a book like this in a really long time, which is super, super refreshing for Marvel specifically. And I dug it. I thought it was a little light. It was a little light on, not a lot of meat on them bones. Even for like a caper, it wasn't a particularly interesting caper. He breaks into the casino. He causes some distractions. He's he, got to steal the thing. He's got to steal a thing. He steals a thing. I mean, it's just, it, it, it wasn't in, in, in the scheme of big Vegas capers. It was no Ocean's 12. For sure. I despise you as a human being. <laughs> but uh, no, I thought it was fun. I thought the panel stuff was cool. He does. It, there's really interesting things happening with it moving in different directions. So like we're reading the action one way, and then we have to read it back the other way, and then read it another. All on the same page. A lot of cool double page spread stuff. I think it's worth it for the uh, the weird ass colors and panel stuff alone. Yeah, and I hope this is like the intro. This is setting it up. This is kind of here's the tone. Yep. Here's what we're doing, and then we'll get into some some meatier stuff. And Nick Robinson will, you know, he will he'll dig in. He'll dig into some meat, is what I was gonna say. He, he and I'm will. standing by it. I'm not gonna change that. I think he'll he's gonna he will dig into some meat at some point. That guy writes book. great comic books. That's for sure. You write cool, Isn't Marcus. It? That's Nick Fury number one. Yes, from Marvel Comics. Yes, sweet. Did you say Nick Robinson? Is it James it's Robinson? James Robinson. I'm obsessed with my own name. All right, doesn't matter. No, no one will catch it. No Nick, one. Nick, what was your pick this week? My Nick pick this week, I'm changing it from big pick to Nick pick. Thank you. What was your big Nick? <laughs> it was Secret Empire Zero. Cool. I like that. Book. The just over the top, totally necessary. Wait, who wrote it? <laughs> Nick Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Spencer wrote the big Nick pick this week. Nice. It's crazy. Uh, yeah, this is a crossover from Marvel. It's weird. They don't really do these very often. Mm. So it's a real treat when we get a giant company consuming mega crossover. Are you being sarcastic right now? I am being just a whiff of sarcastic. Uh, it was pretty cool. I gotta say, Nick Spencer, mm-hmm. partially probably because his name is Nick, is a, is a damn fine comic writer. Mm-hmm. Marvel's last crossover was Civil War II, which we all agreed was pretty... Poopy. Medium to dookie. Yeah, except both of you dudes talked about how much you loved it the entire time it was coming out, and it's fucking on tape. But yeah, anyway, keep going. Look, out it of was the dookie. gate, it was pretty good. And then it ended like dum-dum pants. This one, out of the gate? It was pretty good. Also dope. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, you were saying Civil War II, uh, he wrote a little one-shot Nick yes, Spencer called, did. called Captain America, the Oath, or Civil War II, the Oath starring Captain America. And it was really great, and we thought it ended the series really cool, and we all agreed on that yes. one being like, oh, cool. I wish maybe the whole thing could have been cooler like this. That is to say, this guy's a good writer. And we learned in Civil War II, The Oath, just to set the stage mm-hmm. for what the fuck is going on, because it is convoluted as all get out. It's in, intense. In this book. But one of the things that we learned in Civil War II, The Oath, was that we already know Captain America has secretly been an agent of HYDRA his entire life. Since due, he was a little boy. Since he was a little boy, due to the, the time machinations of Kobik, the Cosmic Cube. A sentient Cosmic Cube. Who changed history for the Red Skull and made Captain America a Hydra, Hydra agent. And in Secret War II, The Oath, we learned that Captain America is basically, he's been made the director of S.H.I.E.L.D. He's been given like unprecedented war emergency powers and nobody knows that he is secretly a Hydra agent. And now we walk into... A lot of other shit happened beside that, by the way. This, it's very, very complicated, but that's... That basically sets the stage for Secret Empire, right? Yes. Uh, so many things have happened. If you want to get caught up a little bit, Steve Rogers' Captain America is the best series to do that. Mm-hmm. We've talked about that 
series on this podcast many, many times. This is the very controversial first issue was, you know, Hail Hydra from Steve Rogers and everyone lost their shit and it was mm -hmm. crazy and people are still losing their shit. If you want to read about reactions and theories and thoughts on this whole thing, it's all over the internet on comic sites and there's a lot of really interesting stuff. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, depending on what you're... I want to talk about it a little bit too when we're in this book discussion here, but... There we go. Uh, so we open up here with Steve Rogers uh, going into a secret, the secret Hydra base, the start of all Hydra. This ancient base. So, let, so we thought, I thought anyways, Hydra came about sort of World War II time alongside the Nazis and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But now Nick Spencer's building this big mythos. Hydra has been around since the dawn of man, and they've secretly had their tentacles in everything since it all began. Yeah. And Nick Spencer would love it if we could not talk about Nazis and Hydra. That Nick, that would be Nick Spencer's favorite shit and Marvel too. I was going to say Marvel probably would yeah. be very cool with that. So what we have here is, again, the Cosmic Cube rewriting time uh, and Steve Rogers, again, taking the role as head of S.H.I.E.L.D. and things are really hitting the fan. The Chitauri Empire, which people will know from the Avengers movies, this alien race, they're invading Earth. Those are all the, all the millions of aliens that poured through the sky to try to kill everybody. In the Avengers In the movie Avengers. time. Yeah, and they're in the comic and they're evading Earth again. They just can't quit. They love Earth. They love it they so much. They just want it. So there's, they're trying to put up a shield. Cap's got a million secret plans going. He's trying to divide all the heroes while still pretending to be a good guy. Guys, jump in here at any time. He, this masterful plan that Cap has to take everybody off the field is really, really cool, and it's fun to so, watch it play out over 60 issues yeah, or so 60 pages. What we end up with is Captain Marvel is in space with Alpha Flight. Chitauri are attacking, and Captain Marvel, and all the basically the, the space faring superheroes they're out in space fighting right. Chitauri. Uh New York City is getting attacked by like a mob of of bad guys that have all so just randomly been released and that's Luke Cage defenders Doctor Strange anybody that's New York based they're in New York they're that's right. they're punching bad guys all escapees from Pleasant Hill which is the place where Captain America where this all happened, where Captain America got turned from an old man into a young man and then got his history rewritten. And we learned about the Cosmic Cube. That's another series, Pleasant Hill, you could read if you want to get yeah, into that. Yeah, all of the villains that were trapped in Pleasant Hill, we're not going to get into that whole thing right now, but those are the dudes that are attacking, attacking. New York. Yep. And that's not all. We have a third f threat. Do we not? We do, and it's I'm blanking. Oh, yeah. A, com uh, a country has been oh, completely taken over by Hydra, and they have some nuclear weapons. That's right. The and Lead Skull has taken over Slovenia. Yeah. Yeah. So that's three different attacks all at the same time, and things are looking very grim. And what this allows to happen is that Cap initiates his Earth Super Defense Clause, and the presidents of all the countries give Cap ultimate wartime authority. They're the like, keys to all the armies. Yep. Like, yeah. hey, it's just too crazy. And, and when it gets this crazy, the director of S.H.I.E.L.D., we just put him in charge of absolutely everything. So, Cap, you're in charge of absolutely everything. But Cap's a fucking Hydra agent. It's, and nobody knows it. It's so good. So he turns on a... Should I spoil it? I'm spoiling it. Fuck it. All it's right. too cool. He Spoiler turns alert. on the Earth S.H.I.E.L.D., where they've been talking about in Marvel. That was also like a big part of Civil War II, The Oath, which is also like a reference to very super topical things that are happening right now. Mm -hmm. It's like yeah. a big fence that's going to stop the aliens from getting in. He turns on the fucking earth fence with all of the superheroes on the other side of it. And so they, they're trapped. Yeah. They can't get in. 
It's so good. It's so good. He just tells uh, Captain Marvel, like, yeah, this just happened, and goodbye. He just hangs up the phone on her. Yep. We'll never speak again. Oops, sorry, I gotta go. <laughs> yeah. And then all of the the New York folks are still bogged down because even worse shit is happening. So basically, he has separated all of the superheroes from each other and distracted them all with like these huge crises and claimed his super president, like president of the whole planet powers. It's really good. It's pretty good. It's, I mean, like, as I was reading, and I will be the first to admit, I was very poo-poo Hydra Cap when it first happened. Yeah. I was Ooh. very, very angry. You were so pissed, dude. But in next Nick Spencer, I trust this is a... I don't know if I've seen so many seeds of Marvel plot for so long come together in one beautiful orchestra of a story. We should talk about this a little bit. So people are very, very pissed about the fact that Captain America, who, okay, who is a, the creation of two Jewish World War II veterans. Jack Kirby and Joe Simon. Who is a Hydra agent. And Hydra, no matter what Marvel would, whatever flag they wave off in the corner to try to distract you, the, the Hydra was created as a function of like the Nazis. Totally, they were the villains that 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 superheroes could punch. They were they were Nazis. Yeah, and they're like and they were super Nazis. Even more Nazis than Nazis. They were like too Nazi for the Nazis. Yeah, they were like, we gotta quit. You guys aren't Nazi enough for us right now. We're yeah. gonna break off and be even more shitty. So there have been people that have been super pissed about the fact that Captain America is, you know, a Nazi. I'm not gonna lie. It's hard to take. Captain America's one of my favorite superheroes of all time. Yes. Very, very hard to look at the cover of this comic and see a Hydra symbol on Cap's chest right now. It's brutal. It's a very, it makes me feel so many different complicated feelings, you guys. Because I, my initial reaction, I think this was my initial reaction to this, was like, stop. It's, it's, stop. It's fake. Mm-hmm. Don't be precious about your superheroes. Let your superheroes do weird shit and do crazy shit. Like if it's going to be compelling and interesting and, and yes, wild. Because yeah. otherwise we just stagnate and the, we, we keep reading the same stories over and over and over again and will into the future if we don't get like super weird with it. But, but, Nazis. That's the, it's Nazis. That is the problem, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it absolutely is the problem. I think what they're trying to do here by giving hydra a ancient origin is them trying to beat around the fact that hydra ends up working with the nazis but that was not that until yesterday when this book came out Mm -hmm. that was not the case hydra has always been very tied with the nazi movement yeah and so spencer's been working kind of trying to wiggle his way free over the last year or so of that and in here he kind of gives us the definitive Hydra's been around longer than Nazis. Yeah. It just sucks because it's Captain America who is, he's created by two Jewish Americans. But here's the thing. We all have to remember that at some point he's going to be Captain America again. Yep. And he's going to punch all of these dudes in the face. Yes. You know that that's how this is going to happen. That is exactly 100% what's going to happen. Mm Mm-hmm. So we all just need to down a little bit, right? Yeah. It, again, and I keep telling myself, shit is fake. These are characters. We got to do things that are like interesting for the fiction and like trust these writers if we trust these writers. Now, that being said, Nick Spencer's been a little provocative on the old internet about this kind of stuff. He's not really trucking 
with any of the cri- any of the criticism nope. that people have thrown at him about this book, and maybe he's not always handled it in the most mature or level-headed oh, way. He's definitely throwing yeah fuel on the fire. Yeah, you know, and it's kind of funny, but it's also you know. If people have real grievances, you know, maybe don't do that. Yeah. Maybe, you know, try to talk respectfully with folks who maybe don't, who think this is pretty fucking crazy. But well, um, we also have to give the dude credit. I mean, like, I just can't think of another book that has pulled from so many long. I mean, they've been putting so much out there to lead up to this that we had no idea was going to take effect in this book like it did, like the Earth Shield. Mm-hmm. You know, we've known that that's been a thing. It was a big thing in Civil War too, but it it plays a huge role in this book and is going to play a huge role in Secret Empire, the Pleasant Hill, the you know the I mean there's the just Sam Wilson the cap Sam, stuff yeah. that you know that's where almost two years of that the Steve Rogers cap. There's just so mm-hmm. much feeding this story, and it's it is an impressive feat to have set up so many little bites. Yeah. To create the feast. I think as a consequence of that, like it is, I mean, you guys, I don't know that you guys will agree. I think this would be pretty unreadable if you are not pretty well versed in the in the Marvel universe. Oh, you would have no fucking idea. Yeah, it's pretty dorky. Yeah. Yep. When I am loving it. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think in terms of crossovers, as far as like Secret Wars, super approachable. Civil War Two was bad, but you could pretty much just jump right. in, right? This is, like you say, Marcus, it's built from a lot of different puzzle pieces. This is for active yeah. comic book readers. And I and I get we want new people to get into comics and it is important, mm-hmm. but as a big comic book nerd, I had a fucking blast reading this yeah. book. And I, you know, and there are, if you go into a comic shop and if your interest is piqued, you know, ask the comic folks there. They can give you a couple things. The Sam Wilson cap mm-hmm. is a good spot. Definitely the Steve Rogers Captain America. It's in two trades right now. Those are Civil War Two: The Oath. Don't read Civil War Two, but Civil War Two: The Oath. Exactly. Right. The Pleasant Hill uh, collection. You could absolutely take a look at. Um, and Ooh, also, you want to do that? Well, you, you know, depending on how deep you want to go right, into the for, hole, but for, those to are, appreciate the pieces exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then also, Free Comic Book Day is coming up on May the sixth. That's and a couple Saturdays away, and there will be a Secret Empire Free Comic Book Day special, that's which cool. for free you can you know peek your head in the door and see what's happening. Yeah. So, God help me, I've, they've got me again, gentlemen. They do this every time, and this is we should do a trajectory of issues. Maybe we do this whole series because it's usually the first four we're all kind of in, in agreement. Yeah. And then it just starts to waffle, and then the end is just like there's definitely one issue. I think th- how many how many issues are going to be in the Secret Empire proper? We, we don't know yet, and are they going to change the numbering halfway? They're going to call it seven, mm-hmm. and it's going to end up being nine. Yes, and then the ninth one will be a double size issue that'll take four months to come out. Right. So yeah. when we're talking about this in January of 2018, yes, um, we can kind of you're like you say we'll we'll take a look at the whole ride, but it's usually somewhere around the middle where they put out an issue where nothing fucking happens at all, yep. and it's like up. Ah, you got me again, you, you silly butt motherfucker. <laughs> but I tell you, I read this first issue and I just loved it. I, I, had a blast. I thought it was very, very cool. As nerdy as all, get out and and we should say the art by Dan- Daniel Acuna is stellar. This guy's been drawing comics for years and years and years. He's done Freedom Fighters over at DC. He did a bunch of cool stuff uh, yeah. all over the comics. The, the art is stellar in this book. Yeah, I and I, and I don't anymore begrudge. Anyway, guys, I read a lot of stuff about this yesterday. There's actually a really good article on uh, Polygon.com, of all places, that we'll post to in the show notes. 
um, that really did. Because my initial reaction to this stuff is like, shut up, it's fake. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that's not a that's an idiotic reaction. Like, of course, people have strong associations with Nazis, as they probably should. Right. So, um, th- all that being said, if you can go along for the ride, I think it's totally worth it. That's for sure. Agreed. Se- Secret Empire number zero. There it is. Marvel Comics. I have a very, very quick, a quick pick. You have a quick pick, uh, Nick? Uh, Do, uh, is anybody named Nick in this comic? Is the name of this comic Nick? Is it Nick number one? Let me check. Uh, let's see. Nope. Nope. Nothing at all. Bill Willingham, I though, I hear his, his that is his nickname Nick. is Nick. Nick Willingham. Nick Willingham. Now, my pick is The Greatest Adventure, number one, from Bill Willingham. Uh, our, our esteemed partner, Steve Fadale, yes. said, you guys are full of shit if you go pick the new Bill Willingham book yesterday. That's we what were, he told you? We were doing, and he hadn't read it. <laughs> he didn't know if it was going to be any good. And I was like, I don't know, man. We'll see. But I liked it. It was, my, it was my favorite book. Steve loves Tarzan. He does. That's the thing. He, he loves Tarzan. He loves fables, too. He loves Bill Willingham. And so, he's not wrong. Who's Bill Willingham, Curtis? Oh, it, we should probably say, he wrote this huge, huge book for Vertigo Comics called Fables. Yeah. And it ran 125 issues, something like this. Something like that. A lot of issues. A lot of issues. It's like 23 graphic novels. And mm-hmm. uh, just a stellar run. What if fables are real? What if uh, there's this huge war in fable land where all, you know, Fable creatures in, in myth lives, yeah. and all these folks get kicked out of their land, and they have to come to Earth. Some go to Earth, some look like people, some are the three little pigs, and they got to live in a special place. And it was this great comic that went on forever. Sounds kind of cute. Sounds kind of cutesy and maybe a little, you know, little cheesy. It is maybe one of the most impressive runs on a comic in comics. Yeah. It, like, makes you care about characters that you just fundamentally don't care about. Like you will, I think about uh, Little Boy Blue all of the time. The the what happens to that dude and like the the journey he goes on. He becomes the king of this kingdom and it's it, he goes from like a kid that works in the the in you know sweeping floors at in the fables part of New York that they work in and then gets in war. I mean, it just goes on and on. It's an unbelievably dense, brilliant story. Fables. Can't say Agreed. That's, about that's it. when I think of like the best of Vertigo ever. Yes. You know, it's in that that five or six. You know, when you think of Sandman or Hellblazer or whatever, Fables is absolutely yeah. just one of the most seminal moments from that imprint from DC Comics. It's when it's in the conversation of like what what if you're gonna you know all time greats. I think. Agreed. If you're gonna read comics at some point. You should probably read Fables if you want to see what comics can do. For so, sure. He has a new book, and he hasn't really had much come out, if anything, since Fables ended a few years ago. He did just this weird little steampunk book, also yes. for Dynamite, called Legendary, which was was pretty neat. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know where he's been or what he's been doing, but it's cool that he's back. So The Greatest Adventure is, uh, it says right on the cover, Edgar Rice Burroughs' Heroes and Heroines Unite, which is kind of a weird concept. I did not read that on the cover. So these are all characters. They're all that. Edgar Rice Burroughs characters. Cool. So you're... Your Tarzans, your uh, John Carter of John Mars? Carter of Mars, and then like twelve dudes I've never heard of because Edgar Rice Burroughs has written a ton of shit, and I'm not familiar with his work at all. But that's kind of cool. I think you just go into this not knowing any of it. 
You don't have to care that it's Tarzan. You don't have to care that it's... Even the characters you have heard of, if you just go into it as an adventure story, it opens up with this scientist. He's been kidnapped by aliens. They're forcing him to build a weapon. He escapes on a fighter plane and crashes in Africa where he finds Tarzan, and together they build a team to get revenge and to stop these aliens from building a crazy super weapon. It, the whole issue is just about building this team of super buddies, and it works really, really well. I thought That's it was fair. awesome. I no, I agree with you totally. And, and this is we were talking about this earlier. This is the perfect example of how to the first issue build the team comic book. Yeah. Like, how do you mean? We're always reading issue number ones where it's we got to get the squad together, and it's usually handled very poorly. You know, Batman uh, goes to each town and you know meets everybody and gives a speech while while he's got to start a team. You know, and they listen, and then they somehow form a team. By the end of the first episode, they're all a team, and they have a big secret base, and it's all... And it's just normally not good. People don't know how to do that There's issue There's almost one. always, like, each character gets a scene where they're, like, in a chase, and they get the call that they've been asked to join the team. Okay, I'll join. Or, like, they're fighting somebody, and as soon as they get finished fighting somebody, like, Nick Fury's there, like, we need you again. You know, and it's and, and one person joins, but they don't want to. Yeah, you, you know, you always have the fuck your team. Yeah, one of them's and in it for the money. Two minutes yeah. later, after the team is about to not be able to handle the situation, the one renegade shows up. But I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for some other reason. <laughs> like literally, these dudes, they're they have to put this team together. They put up an ad in the newspaper, and then all of these different Edgar Rice Burroughs characters travel in from all over the globe to like. Just they just stop by the farm and they're like, hey, we want to be on the team. They gotta wrestle Tarzan to yeah. get on the squad. You can't get on the team if you don't wrestle Tarzan. No, which, which is how we're going to interview people from <laughs> now on. We'll hire a, like a dude who's like Tarzan. Okay, no, it's gonna be you. It's gonna be me. Gonna, I see. You have to wrestle everyone. Nice. Do I wear a loincloth made yeah. of cheetah skin? Yeah, we're yeah. gonna we're gonna get in the paper. And then when they when you when they fail and they're like, I'm not done yet. You're like, good. That's, I was going to beat you. I knew I was going to beat you. Yeah, I was so close. But I was going to see if you were going to get stand back How up. tenacious are you? Exactly. And they get a cool ship. I, I agree with you, man. This was a fun-ass first issue. I loved it. I feel like we know enough about the characters. I think they established all the characters somehow with just the yep. right amount. With we a, know what we need to know. With not a lot of info. Yeah. When my dude John Carter tries to leap onto the airship... But he's not on Mars gravity anymore, so, so he, just he like falls. he just falls over. It's like just a little two foot jump, and he like kind of gets himself back. It was like, oh, I forgot for a moment yep. that I'm not on Mars. Just great. John Carter of Mars taught me about different gravity types. I was reading another yeah. comic, and like you could have like 1.5 gravity. Yeah, I never considered that before. It was always no gravity or gravity, but then like some gravity. What if you had like a weird amount of gravity where you could like jump like really high, but it's like basically gravity still? That's pretty fucking cool. Yeah. So, anyways, so that's the greatest adventure from Bill Willingham. This book, I think, this book would have been a disaster if anybody else had written it. And Bill Willingham, it's it was wonderful. He's just a classy like so ass dude. I don't even know how to describe his yeah. writing style. It's not overly verbose or anything, but it's but it's got a lot of words. But yep. he gets a lot done without. He's got a lot of words, but he doesn't tell you everything. It's just a just a classy ass dude. I like him a lot. Our picks this week were Nick Fury number one from Marvel Comics, Secret Empire number zero, also from Marvel Comics, and The Greatest Adventure from Dynamite. Greatest Adventure, issue number one. Now, if we may, did anybody, uh, did anybody charge the, the old taser? 
I found it on the ground, so I hooked it up to some car jumpers and then put them on my battery. I hope that works. To your car battery? Yeah. To your Jeep battery? Yeah. Oh, man. That's probably going to work. Well, here, let's just tease Curtis real quick with it. <laughs> Seems fine. All right. Perfect. I needed that. Thank you. You're now welcome. he's Now that Curtis has been sh- it just it tased with uh, so much knowledge, our taser this week is Dark Horse. And a little bit of Mike Mignola. Our taser this week comes to us courtesy of Charles. He's in charge. He isn't. He is today. I bet he's so fucking sick of that <laughs> reference. Charles, I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm sorry for Marcus, and I'm sorry for the life you've had to lead since the early 90s. When was that show on the air? Probably about then. I can't remember, but I watched it thoroughly. And he was in charge of my heart and my life for many years. Yeah. And our days. And our nights. And our nights. This is in charge of fucking everything. Charles is also in charge of what Taser stands for now because he sent us a sweet, listen to this. He suggests that Taser stands for Technically Accurate Super Skull Evidence-Based Research. It's pretty good. He nailed it. Good job, Charles. You're one of the team. That might be what it what it stands for now. Until we forget about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're going to forget about it pretty quickly, too. Ma- matching tattoos. <laughs> Ooh, right on our necks. I love neck tats. In- you want to get a neck tat that it just explains what Taser is? So yeah. every time we're about to forget, we can look in the mirror. We'll look at each other's necks. Nick, quick, look at my neck and tell me what it says. What's Taser stand for? Thank you, Charles. And Charles wants to know about the history of Dark Horse and Mike Mignola. And I say, God damn it, let's do it. For Charles, anything. Anything for you, man. I love you. What is Dark Horse? Dark Horse is a comics publishing house. All right. Taser over. Taser over. No. They were founded in 1986 by a gentleman named Mike Richardson. And he is still, to this day, the only dude who owns Dark Horse, which is kind of amazing. Um... He opened a store called Pegasus Books and used that money that he was making to kickstart the publishing house. And what's interesting about Mike Richardson is he he always wanted to create a publishing house, but he didn't have the capital to do it. So he created a comic book store called Pegasus Books and used that money to kickstart Dark Horse uh, publications. Was that always his plan was to... He always wanted... The comic shops were just a funnel to the... I mean... I read different, buddy. Did you? I did. Oh, yeah? And I I wonder what you read also. So my understanding was that he... So his wife gets pregnant. Yeah. He quits his job. He gets a teddy bear that says you're a daddy. Yep. And he immediately goes and quits his job. And then he opens a comic shop. And over the course, the comic shop does very, very well. And this is in the year 1980, we should say, which is at the birth of the direct market. Yes. So comic shops are just becoming a thing. Yes. Which is pretty awesome. And as his comic shop grows more and more popular and he's doing better and better, he starts to talk to all of these different creators. And he starts to have lunches. This is like these famous lunches that Mike Richardson would have with all of these different comic book creators. And he comes to learn that as the medium is exploding and as everything's doing really, really well, these folks are really be maybe not getting paid what they should and they certainly don't own any of the characters that they're creating or working on. It's still all work for hire at that point. And I don't disagree with that, but I had read that since the founding of Pegasus Books, the dream was to open a publishing house. Mm-hmm. That might be. Yeah. So, but regardless, he has these. He's meeting these creators, and he's he's moved by their plight. He's always wanted to start a publishing company. So this is it. This is what he does. This is what he does, and it's kind of amazing. He still owns 
four comic book shops uh, between California and Oregon to this day. They're now called Things from Another World. Wait, he owns four comic book shops? He does. That pisses me off. And he's one of the sweetest comic book publishers Two at the same time. Ah, shit. And at one point he owned a restaurant, I don't know if he still does, and a construction company. Wait a minute. Is this dude, wait a minute. He's maybe has superpowers. Is this is this the idol? Is this the dream? Is he the dream? I don't know. See, I was reading more about this dude. He might be my dream that I didn't even know because he also opened his comic book store with $2,500 on a credit card. That's had, what you did. He had no money. Yeah. He couldn't get a loan. It's really weird. There's a lot of parallels here. Hmm. I mean, I was only eight years old at the time, and I didn't know about any of this stuff happening, and I didn't know about it until literally yesterday. But yeah. I really, anyways. Like, I really am much more comfortable looking down my nose at people in the comic book industry, so this is very uncomfortable for me. This guy sounds awesome. Yeah, he's like a hero dude. Yeah. Like, I want to be you. Can I learn from you? Can I study at the feet of Mike Richardson? For real. Okay, so the idea is that from the get-go, he wants to, he wants to showcase creator-owned talent. Yes. How did they do that? What was the, what was the first book we saw out of Dark Horse? So the very first thing they published was in 1986. It's a comic called Dark Horse Presents, commonly referred to as DHP. And this thing ran for a billion years, like 160-some episodes, excuse me, issues. And that's what they call them in comic land, mm-hmm. not episodes, issues. Uh, it sold 50,000 copies. They thought they were going to sell around 10,000 copies. The news came as they were hanging out at San Diego Comic-Con. The numbers started coming in from... Diamond, which was a thing at that point, mm-hmm. well, one of the the biggest distributor even way back then, and so it was a smash hit, and they were off to the races. And the first issue featured a guy named Paul Chadwick, who Nick really really likes. He did a book called Concrete, I love that book. which became like an early success story for Dark Horse. It ran in Dark Horse Presents for many years, but then got its own book, very famous, awesome early Dark Horse book. Who else might we recognize from Dark Horse? What are some creators that we might know? There's so many, it's crazy. So we got Frank Miller who people might know from Sin City or 300 or the Batman comic that changed Batman forever, The Dark Knight Returns. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have Dave Stewart, who's a colorist that we sometimes talk about on this podcast. Very po- prolific colorist. Maybe one of the, probably has more credits for coloring than just about anybody. This guy's been around since Dark Horse and is still going strong. Jeff Darrow has worked there. John Byrne, very famous X-Men artist, Marvel creator from the early 80s who's still doing comics. Steve Niles, who brought us 30 Days of Night. Mm -hmm. Mike Allred, who we're totally in love with, who did a book called Madman. He's getting ready to do a book called Bug for Young Animal over at DC. So just a laundry list. Joss Whedon, Stan Sakai. Joss Whedon? Yeah, he worked there on- What, from the TV? Yeah, from the Buffy in the Avengers movies. Cool. Yeah, he's a great dude. And he's gonna do a Batgirl movie too. We'll throw that out there. It's so warm in here. Can I just complain about it for it's a little very bit? Hot. Is it warm? Are you warm? I'm perspirating in all the crevices. Is it? Does talking about Dark Horse and creator-owned comics get you hot? Does it well, make your body into, hot? He's into horses. <laughs> I'm and, real into... And definitely dark horses. Uh, that's what it is, because it's got Dark Horse in the title, and it's giving, making you hot. It's that, it's that... It's making your glands swell. Midnight colored centaur. So Dark Horse... It, as you look back, I always have fond things to say about Dark Horse. I love Dark Horse. I forget what a fucking powerhouse they are creatively. How many titles they've put out. How many like really impactful, huge for the industry comic books they've put out over the years. Been around a really long time. And we should not forget to say they're talking about creator-owned comics 
how long is that? So 1986, Image is 1992. Two. Mm-hmm. So they're six years ahead of what is like commonly the the poster boy publisher for creator rights. Dark Horse was already doing it. You know, and I was speaking of Image, I was reading. I don't want to jump the gun here, uh, but. Image was in talks with Dark Horse to be their publisher before Image was Image. I had read about that. So that was, and was at least talking to those creators exactly. as they're kind of like getting disgruntled and they're trying to figure out what to do. They are talking to Dark Horse and Dark, you know, they couldn't ever put a deal together. But you know, it was interesting. So it was very exactly. Interesting. There's a lot of ties there. There's just something in the zeitgeist at this point about comic books, and there's so much money going around that people are starting to finally have the conversation: who owns what? Why am I not getting paid for my creative work? Yep, comic shops were exploding. Yeah, it was a whole boom, awesome boom time for comics. So Dark Horse is also an early example of how to do licensed characters and properties really, really well, which is something that we forget. So they had really early success with Alien and Predator starting in 1988. And licensed comics were had not really been well received previous to that, and they really weren't given any. It was we we churned stuff out. The industry churned stuff out because something else was popular, and we want to get some of that sweet, sweet money. Which I respect, but it wasn't usually very good. Well, in Dark Horse with Aliens and Predator in particular, like brought new stuff to the canon. They took it very seriously. Yes. Uh, and fans of both of those properties love those early comics. I think that's what it was. They treated it as seriously as if it was an original thing. Mm-hmm. And that was not easily found in the comic book industry. Followed up with Star Wars, which actually really helped put Star War- put Dark Horse on the map, rather. And that's not to mention Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Conan was an adaptation of an earlier work. Stuff like Mass Effect. Avatar The Last Airbender was a New York Times bestseller for Dark Horse and still does really, really well every time a new it's book a, comes It's out. a perennial book. We sell Avatar books like crazy. Every well, week, all weeks. And it's crazy, too. The, along with the Mass Effect, they also picked up the rights for Dragon Age. Yes. And both of those books, while there, there aren't a lot of companies who are willing to take a chance on a video game property... But they take the Mass Effect books and they take the Dragon Age books and they do that. They build the canon around them. And people who are fans of those video games come in specifically because they know about those comic books. For the Mass Effect books, Mark Andrews, the writer for the video games, worked on the comics. Like, yeah. yep. So they're taking it seriously. Not only did they pave the way for licensed stuff, I also was not fully aware that they really led the way for manga in the United States. They were doing like really early translations of manga before anybody else was. So they started in 1987, a year after they opened with Godzilla, King of Monsters. That's fucking cool. That's very, very crazy at that point in history. It was not a huge manga scene. There was no guarantee of an audience for this stuff in the 80s. No, just going over the history of Dark Horse, the one thing that stands out is Mike Richardson knows his shit Yes, and just had his finger on the pulse ahead of... Of way ahead of generally the game. everybody else in the business. So Lone Wolf and Cub, uh, Astro Boy, Akira, Ghost in the Shell, Blade of the Immortal. It just goes on and on and on. Oh My Goddess is the longest American running manga series brought to us by Dark Horse. Oh, Berserk. 1.2 million copies of Berserk sold. Yeah, I was just reading an article about how crazy uh, successful Dark Horse has been with all those titles you listed are perennials and are still kicking ass to yep. this day, uh, but Berserk is on fire. And the new volume, for the first time in like five years, there hasn't been a new Berserk in the U.S. in five years. It's coming out, and it promises to be a smash. Yep. So they're still killing it. There's a million other books. Sin City, 300, Mask, Mystery Men, Barbed Wire. Nick, Can't forget about Barbed Wire. Which I love. You're so into it. I was a copy in every bathroom I've ever been in. I just I sprinkle it around my life just in case I need it. 
at any time. If you go to a public restroom, you take a copy of barbed wire, you leave it there. Yep. I spent a lot of money on barbed wire. You're welcome, Dark Horse. Volume one. I don't with subsequent volumes. And recent successes for us, stuff like Umbrella Academy, Lady Killer, Mind Management. American Gods is Dark Horse? It is. Oh, that's crazy. And I put that on the list because it's been our biggest single-issue Dark Horse release in months, in months and months and months. Huge. So they continue to put out really, really good stuff, and they totally fall under the radar all of the time. And I think they have been – they really hit a stride recently. But out of all of those titles, the thing that I will always and first think of when I think of Dark Horse is Hellboy and Mike Mignola. Can we, right. talk, can we talk about Mike Mignola for a hot second? Let's do Please. it. So Mike Mignola had a pretty awesome career for 11 years before he even did anything with Hellboy. He studied illustration at the California College of Arts and graduated in 1982. He first published uh, an illustration in the Comic Reader, number 183. Have you, Curtis, have you ever seen or read a, co- a copy of the Comic Reader? I totally haven't. I, so I did some research just looking this up. Uh, I've never seen it before. It ceased publication in 1984, right. so I am old as fuck. But I'm not quite that old. Okay. I was just barely starting to read Marvel comics and stuff at have that point. Have you seen a copy of this come I, through? I never have. I don't understand what this was. So, I don't understand what a fanzine like that. So the comic reader was called, it was referred to as the TV guide of the comic industry, and it ran for like 20 years. So it was amazingly popular. The thing, the coolest fact that I could find out about this is Paul Levitz, mm-hmm. who was a comic book retailer, who then went on to be the editor-in-chief of DC Comics for many, many years, has a very famous run of Legion of Superheroes. Mm-hmm. He's kind of the dude when uh, people talk about Legion, they talk about this guy, Paul Levitz. He um, ran the fanzine for years and years and years. So it was just this super nerdy. But what was in it? What did they do? Was it essays? It, was it It was discussions stuff? about comic books, reviews yeah, of comic okay. books. Yeah, just totally that comic fandom. At one point, they were. it was distributed so heavily, they were getting like people like Jack Kirby to do covers for it and shit. Yes. So it's weird. It's a fanzine, but this is pre kind of like direct market distribution. Yeah. So I don't know how they got it out there. I couldn't find anything about like how would you get this thing. I'm just so, I want, you know, I want one of these so, I just want to read one. I couldn't find any scans of it. I couldn't find any like interior pages, just stuff about the book. Yep. Nick, Nick's dream is to write for the comic reader. Oh God, I Could would you love imagine? that. I just think it's so neat that you can distribute a fanzine pre-distribution and make that many waves. I just love that it existed. Anyway, so the comic reader was his first appearance as a as a paid illustrator. It was an illustration of Red Sonia, as it happens. He oh. was he was an inker at Marvel. He worked on Daredevil, Power Man, and Iron Fist, Incredible Hulk, Rocket Raccoon, a bunch of other stuff. And then he started working for DC in 1987. Worked on a lot of different projects uh, and started a pretty cool slate of cover work for both of the big two. And he's going back and forth. He was not exclusive with either one. He's just working for hire. Gotham by Gaslight in 1989. That was a cool book. Dynamite Batman story. Mignola is, he's just a work for hire artist. He's bopping from company to company. He's doing really cool stuff, but he's not really owning or controlling anything that he produced. So uh, he comes to Mike Richardson and him have one of these meetings, these famous sit-down luncheons. The famous lunches. And uh, he pitches Hellboy, Seed of Destruction. Uh, at this point in his career, he's he's been an illustrator. He hasn't wrote his own stuff. So he's a little nervous, so he calls in his good buddy John Byrne to help him script the first four issues of the Hellboy comic. And uh, this comic has been published co- continuously, although slowly. He maybe only does three, four comics a year. Mm-hmm. But since 1994, there has been Hellboy comics every couple of months since the first run which is very, very cool and says, just speaks to how cool the book is. 
there's not really I can't think of a single other book or character driven book mm-hmm. that is outside of the big two that has endured for almost 25 years. So pretty awesome. Can you get can you describe Hellboy to me very brief? Can you do it in a haiku? Hellboy, what is Hellboy? I don't know how haikus work. Hellboy is from hell. He does not want to be bad. Does his best, you guys. That was very good. It's not a very good description of Hellboy, but it was technically a haiku. I just like how he was raised right. He's from hell. Yes. But he was raised right. He was summoned to bring on the apocalypse. By the Nazis. By the Nazis. It's these Nazis again. And a a research team with U.S. soldiers. Foiled. Foils the plan by using grenades. It's beautifully drawn. Everyone should read Hellboy Volume 1. And they find a little little baby, little little hell baby. Yes. Mm -hmm. And they rescue it. And instead of destroying it, they raise it on an army base. It's the coolest shit. It's the coolest shit. So he grows up on an army base, and when he comes of age, he like joins the team that's formed out of like all of this weird paranormal shit that they've discovered because Hellboy was born, and he becomes a member of the Bureau for Paranormal Research and Development. But just imagine Defense. if you, Defense, thank you are a child who is raised— Your social structure is being raised— on a military base. By dudes on a military By base. By dudes on a military base. Like, he has no time for anyone's shit. Yep. Rules are loose and essentially made for him to break. And he loves cigars. And he just loves to smoke and drink. Yeah, and he talks like a dude that was raised on a military base in the 1940s and 50s. Yeah. He's one of the coolest comic book characters out there because he has such a depth of personality. Like... I, I can picture myself having a conversation with Hellboy, and I know exactly what he sounds like, and I know he's just one of the coolest dudes out there. And what's his real name? An- Anun Umrama? That's like the se- like that. his secret name. Yeah. Where he's supposed to unlock the portal to end all things. Yeah, don't say it again, by the I'm way. I'm sorry. That's right. Really you shouldn't dangerous. say that. I think you can say it twice. Don't say it three times. So Mignola has – he's like one of the most recognizable dudes in comics you just see his art and you know exactly that it's a mike mignola book alan moore called mignola's style like german expressionism meets jack kirby i, I never read that until we were looking this up that's a great i think it's right there so mm-hmm. think when you think about mike mignola you think stark angular figures these very simple colors really heavy shadows shadows are really important in mike mignola art there's a simplicity there's an elegance to it that's like not immediately obvious because there's so much style and personality just jumping out of a page of a Mike Mignola book that it takes a second to realize like he didn't use very much ink. There's not a lot going on from panel to panel. To me, Mike Mignola has the most recognizable, distinct style in comics, maybe behind only Jack Kirby, where you can just look at it and be like, I know who did that Agreed. in a, in a good way. Yeah. I also can tell when Rob Liefeld did a book, but it makes me feel different. This is in a good way. Yeah. Right, right. No, I, I think you're right. I, he does this weird thing, like in a good horror movie, where the less is more. It just shows you so much by showing less. Yes. It's just awesome. And a while ago, Mignola had decided that he was going to go on a little bit of a retirement. Um, and he's announced this a couple times throughout his career. He's been but making comics a long he's time. He's been making comics a long time. Uh, but now he has decided that he's back. And what he's going to be doing is teaming up with the artist from a book out right now called Helena Crash. 
That artist's name is, is Warwick Johnson, and it's entitled Mr. Higgins Comes Home. And while it is not part of the Hellboy universe, I think it would very easily fit into it. It is about a man whose wife is killed, and he is approached by two vampire hunters to go investigate the place of his wife's murder as they believe that she's been killed by a vampire. Uh-oh. Uh, he's also been out and about branding the Hellboy universe. You can get your bottle of Hellboy Hellwater cinnamon whiskey Shut on the fuck market up. shelves now. That's not true. Launched on April 14th. What? I shit you not. Hellwater? Hellwater. Hellboy Hellwater cinnamon whiskey. Didn't he also do wine? Yep. Okay, cool. He did wine? Remember, yeah. I talked oh, about no, it on the I podcast do. a while yeah. ago, yeah. What was the name of the wine? I can't remember what it was. Hellwine. I don't know. I want to get a bottle of 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 Hellwater. Very, I don't know if I want cinnamon whiskey, but skeleton head wine. Yeah. Oh boy, that's what it was. Look at the illustration. Can, can we please look at the Hellwater label real quick so Curtis can see how beautiful it is? It's called Hellboy Hellwater. Nope. Well, looking at it, an image on the podcast isn't going to do much. I was going to describe it verbally, but okay. that's okay. So it looks like a pretty cheap bottle of whiskey. <laughs> let's be honest. And oh, on look it, at that. it's got that uh, Hellboy has a real iconic font. You you could you know a Hellboy book when you see how it's written out, and there it is, the Red Devil himself, and it says Hellwater Cinnamon Whiskey. Oh boy, man, that looks like that's a two dollar pint, is what that looks like, my I friends. Have, I have to drink this, and I don't want to. <laughs> I, I want to. Cinnamon whiskey probably sounds t- fucking wretched. Yeah, dude. Oh, it'll probably tastes like hot damn. Yeah, that's fucking Not wretched. Not hot damn. Sorry. Uh, yeah, probably gonna taste like Fireball. Would be my guess, and we're gonna get a bottle. We're going to split it. And we're going to have to. Oh, right. That's definitely a podcast. Us three dudes. Oh, yeah. That'll be a little bonus episode. We'll drink the whole thing. A pint of rot gut. And we'll turn on the microphone, and we'll yell at each other. (laughs) Anyway, that's Mike Mignola. That's Dark Horse. Uh, Man, what a a wild ride for Dark Horse. So if you guys had to pick a book from – the a Mike Mignola book to dive into that and you've never read any Mike Mignola where would you start we talk about this all the time on, on this podcast because it's so big I was looking at how many volumes of, of Hellboy and Hellboy related things there are there's there's a lot 40 graphic novels mm-hmm. it's totally bananas so I would say I'm going to give you a little curveball The Amazing Screw-On Head it's short it's sweet it's a little hardcover it's maybe 60 pages it's not it, it is in the Hellboy universe peripherally it's on the same planet but you don't need to know squat. This is a secret agent guy. He's a head. He screws into bodies. He works for Abraham Lincoln. His main villain villain is called Emperor Zombie. He's a total dick. He's one of his previous manservants that died. It's hilarious. It will give you the flavor of Mike Mignola. It'll show you his art. It'll show you his comedic timing. It'll show you how he does horror. It's fucking really, fabulous. It's really funny. It's super funny. What about you, Marcus? I think it's Frankenstein Underground. It's a book that came out a couple years ago. It is also in the Hellboy universe, but what I like about it is he takes kind of an iconic character. Everyone knows the basic information about Frankenstein, and he puts him in this Mexican-Mayan kind of horror story. Um, And the combination of those two things is something that can really only be done well by Mike Mignola. So I highly recommend checking out Frankenstein Underground. I highly recommend BPRD Volume 1. This is a book that is kind of overseen by Mike Mignola and mostly written by John Arcudi and it is a knockout it is really Hellboy is a bunch of kind of distinct 
books that each one kind of tells its own story and a, a larger narrative kind of reveals itself over a while in the Hellboy books. BPRD is a straight narrative that goes from the beginning and just is it's meant to be serialized. It's meant to be read as one giant contiguous thing. And it is outstanding. It's my favorite expression of the Mignola verse. And it's not drawn by Mike Mignola, but it is kind of, it's very much, it doesn't exist without him. And it shows how rich and how cool these characters in this world is because it stands up to other writers taking the helm. I think one of the, the best things about it is just the Hellboy universe, or often called the Mignola verse, is just one of the richest, most interesting. Every rock that is turned over in the Mignola verse is a door to a hellscape unexplored. Mm -hmm. And it all makes sense and it's all cool. And because he's built kind of the foundation for this, the Mignola universe is ever growing. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter what time period you put it in, it all makes sense and he makes sure that it's, he just makes sure it's really tight. And I appreciate that about him and his universe creation. I'll also just throw out there that Mike Mignola and the BPRD stuff was doing really cool things with ladies in comics before almost anyone else. Like women have, strong women have been central to the BPRD universe since the beginning of the series. And it's only become more important and they've only become more central to the story. Like BPRD is run by ladies and the most important characters in on that team and like driving the story forward, always ladies. And it's something that people don't talk about a lot. No, I, I uh, agree with both you dudes. It's just such a distinct flavor. We do a monthly meeting uh, at the shop, and uh, we do a plug to make sure everyone has read Mike Mignola. I think it's the only creator that we ever do that with. Mm -hmm. It's just these dudes, it's just that important. It's just such a cool, distinct thing. And uh, I agree with you, Marcus. The, the fact that he is able to just keep adding stuff to this universe seamlessly, just super fucking cool. Nothing else like it. Yep. That's absolutely going to do it for us today. Thank you both, gentlemen, very much. Thank you. Our producer and editor is Rachel Polk. Our music was created by A-Bomb. Super Skull is recorded every week at the Ann Arbor District Library. Checking his phone. Not, we're keeping this in there. Oh, it's right in there. I'm not going to stop talking. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. That's not me. I don't say that. Whoa, no. We got to keep it going now. This is, this is Curtis's first podcast, everybody. Are we recorded every week at the Ann Arbor District Library? I think we are. Think Shut the fuck be. up. Please subscribe, download, and review the Super Skull Show on iTunes. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and our website. Super Skull Show is how you find us. That is how you do it. That is how you read a credit, Marcus. Super Skull is brought to you by Vault of Midnight, for its finest comic books and stuff and podcasts since 1996. My name is Nick Weibar. I'm Marcus Schwimmer. And I am young Curtis Sullivan. And we wish you very good reading until next week. So I get up, I get my glass of water, I make my way to my computer because I like to check in in the morning, see what I've missed while I've been in the land of slumber. And it's like, you have 38 <laughs> Pinterest notifications. Mm. Are you a very, big Pinterest no, man? No, I'm not. Okay. It's like, all right, I check out. This one girl has liked all of my LARP photos that I've, I've tagged for Pinterest. She spent some time 
yeah. going through my boards. I was like, what is up? She's into it. She's into it. I click on her photo, and, she, you know, she, she seems like a 20-something-year-old young lady. And I'm like, what's this girl's deal? It says, everyone has a superhero. Mine has always been around. Love you, Jesus Christ. And underneath it are her boards of nothing but illustrated, sexy centaur men. Now, is centaur... Horse on the bottom. Horse on the bottom. Man on the top. Man on the top. Horse on the bottom. Four legs, horse on the bottom. Four legs, horse on the bottom. I was captivated. I've looked at more centaur men today than I think in my entire life before this. 